want to talk to you this morning very simply about the parable of the sower, uh, which we've read in Matthew 13, at 1 to 23. We all know, of course, that the Lord Jesus was the greatest preacher of all the preachers. We, we love reading about the preachers of uh, yesteryear, but not one of them was a good a pre- as preacher as the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see here that great multitudes were gathered to hear him, and so much so that he, he, he went into a boat um, to make space. And like the rabbis did, he sat down on the boat to teach whilst the crowd stood to hear his message. The Lord Jesus often spoke in parables, which we, I suppose, could define as real life stories or at least real life situations where one or two or maybe three main spiritual truths can be drawn. We're not too. Uh, read them like an epistle where we examine every single word. But there we draw, the Lord Jesus meant us to draw a few basic but very important truths from his parables. Jesus' preaching was always so different than the other teachers of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Um, their teaching was bland. People didn't really get, get as excited as they did when they heard the Lord Jesus preach. The Lord Jesus spoke in such a way that people's attention were, were, was wrapped. The common people heard him gladly, the scripture says. Sometimes he was very humorous, uh, like when he talked about people trying to remove specks from someone else's eye when they had a great plank in their own, I'm sure the people laughed when they thought of that image. Or uh, camels trying to get through the eye of a needle. It's impossible, of course. Uh, but And these parables about the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, and so on, are, they're some of the greatest stories ever told. And they're told even to this day. Yes, the common people heard him gladly. And yet, even the Lord Jesus, even the greatest preacher of all time, noticed that not everyone, indeed only a minority of people, actually responded to him with faith and repentance. Yes, sometimes a large crowd gathered and sometimes they followed him for a while, but actually it was a, it was a relatively small number of people that responded to him with faith and repentance. It's not my subject today, but we should draw some encouragement from that ourselves. Our job as Christian people, is to sow the seed, as Christ the sower sowed the seed, and as he continues to do through his church. And perhaps, except in times of great revival, uh, we shouldn't necessarily expect the majority of people to respond positively to our gospel call. They didn't even with the Lord Jesus himself. And so... This parable is the first parable presented by Matthew. 
the parable of the sower, or as some people prefer to call it, the parable of the soils, because it's really the soils that are the key to understanding this parable. Our Lord begins his first parable by examining the various responses people have when they hear the word of God preached. Um, Why, really, the question behind this parable is why, even in his uniquely anointed and powerful ministry, does not everyone enter into the kingdom of God? And the parable is taken from the world of Palestinian agriculture. Uh, maybe, maybe the Lord Jesus, uh, I'm sure he often did, he would see a, a lone figure on a, on a hill sowing seed and he took that, that image and he turned it into a parable, into a sermon. It's a parable about entering into the kingdom of God. Of course, their agricultural practice seems very primitive to us today, doesn't it? We, um, you know, if you sow a field today, you get into your hundred thousand pound tractor and you you perhaps turn the radio on or the air conditioning if it's cold or if it's warm, and you don't need to leave your tractor all day. You you drive to the seed silo and you fill your hopper and you drive into the field and, and um, basically through your seed drill the seed through air pressure comes down these plastic pipes uh, and the coulters, these little triangular blades they, they make a gentle little furrow in the soil and the seed is placed one by one spaced out, not, not a seed is hardly wasted You know, in those days, to sow a field was a much more basic thing. The farmer would go uh, to to the seed, he would fill up a big bag of seed, and he would place this big bag of seed onto onto the tractor of his day, which would be a donkey, and um, they would go to the field, and he would have a smaller bag, and he would take from the bigger bag and fill his smaller bag, which would be on his waist probably. And he would in broadcast fashion just scatter the seed. He would do this um, at the end of October or the beginning of November. Um, and as I say... He would this in this almost indiscriminate way would sow the seed. But of course the disadvantage of this way of sowing was that some of the seed would end up on the pathways, those pathways which um, or waysides which many people would have trampled over perhaps many years and the soil would have become compacted and hard. Some of the wind may take some of the seed and blow it onto some thorns and this, a lot of the seed or some of the seed at least would be wasted it wouldn't connect it wouldn't be sown in the good soil it wouldn't, wouldn't be sown in the fertile soil and then it was only then for the family to pray for the 
for the latter rain, for the heavy rain, to mature the crops which comes in January or February. Well, Jesus tells us this first parable. And he says that the seed stands for the gospel of the kingdom and the soil stands for the human heart. And he uses four types of soil. Four types of soil which the seed lands on to describe four different responses to the message of the gospel. And the type of response to the gospel is determined not not by the message, not by the seed, which is always good. It's determined by the condition of the heart that hears the message of the gospel. The emphasis of the parable is on the human heart and how it rejects or receives the message of Jesus Christ. Well, the first type of soil is described in chapter 13, verse 4. And when he sowed some seeds, when he sowed some seeds, fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured them up. We often see, don't we, as we're driving by and we see a a tractor uh, with a plough. There's hundreds of seagulls normally, isn't it? White seagulls. Uh, gather uh, when the farmer sows the the ground, uh, plows the ground, the field, and here some of the seed, inevitably sown in this broadcast way, ends up on this highly compacted soil. These pathways. And these paths, as I say, would be trampled upon by many people over long periods and the surface soil and the subsoil would be rock hard so any seed that landed on the path uh, wouldn't make proper contact with the soil and the birds just swoop in and take the seed and you know the Lord Jesus here is talking about the hardness isn't he of the human heart outside of Christ the heart that has been hardened perhaps by many years of sin so hard that when the gospel is preached when when the truth is heard the heart is impenetrable it's hardened and we experience this so often don't we when we we go into the open air and preach and and share the gospel there is this immediate rejection sometimes this immediate hostility you see sin has a hardening effect upon the human heart and with time that hardness gets worse and worse this is why we should always take sin seriously we mustn't play with sin because it will make you hard and resistant to God. Paul in Romans chapter 1 shows that there is a kind of progressive descent into more and more iniquity the more and more you reject God. 
You begin, Paul says, by suppressing the truth about God. All that is known through natural revelation or general revelation, what is obvious from the glories of nature, natural creation, even what's obvious about our own bodies, how amazing we are as bodies and our amazing capabilities, all these things speak of a grand architect, of a grand designer, of a God who made it. But you shut those thoughts out. You shut that evidence down because you don't want to hear that. And you pretend, at least in the beginning, you pretend to believe in a wholly materialistic explanation for the world. Francis Schaeffer so often defined evolution as energy or material in some mixture or form which has existed forever and which has taken its present shape by pure chance. He was attacking evolution. He was a great Christian. But is that the truth of this world, that it's just a combination of of matter and energy randomly coming together to produce life, that this world, this universe has no meaning, that it's dark and silent? Well, that's what most people are saying today. They're shutting... They're suppressing the truth that may be known about God in general revelation. And they believe in a silent universe with no personal God and therefore a universe, a universe with no moral value or meaning. But the trouble is it doesn't just stay there. Paul teaches that if you suppress the truth, then you'll descend even further into sin. Romans 1 leads to to verses 21 and 31, where we read about how people plunge into vile affections, idolatry, sexual immorality, a society which is filled with unrighteousness and fornication and wickedness and covetousness and envy and murder and so on and so on carry on suppressing the truth about God and your heart will become hard and your heart will become even more sinful. And then if you carry on in sin, it it gets even worse, Paul says. He says eventually what happens, and it's what's happening in modern Britain today, is that the person who is initially, initially hardens his heart to the voice of God, who hardens his conscience in order to live a life of deliberate sin, in the end, in the end, not only practices the sin of heathenism, but will applaud others who do it. They will clap and commend and applaud sin in others and in society. Romans 1.32 Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them. Well isn't that what's happening today? People are taking pleasure in other people's sins even on the TV and, and in the media. There's this 
reveling in the sin of society. By nature, the unbeliever, when he hears the gospel, when he hears the message of the kingdom of God, the message that there is a God who rules and reigns and has every right to rule over your life in every possible way, your body and your mind and your soul because he created you, the unbeliever for the most part hardens his heart and rebels against the kingdom of God. Man kicks against any restriction or prohibition and the first man did that, Adam. He had all the trees of the garden. He could have had a different meal from those trees three times a day. Such was the variety. Everything was provided for his mind and for his body and for his soul. But there was just one restriction God placed. Do not eat of one tree. But Adam couldn't bear even that restriction. And how we see this today. How the world casts off all all mention of any kind of uh, even moral restriction on on the way they live. Because we're so now so uh, individualistic and we say we need to express ourselves. We need to find our our identity in ourselves. Not in God, not even in others, but in ourselves, in our own sexuality often, or in our own interests. And the world claps and laughs and encourages the vilest of sins. People march and parade in celebration of sin. They talk of of pride They talk literally of pride. Their sin has become their identity, their way of life. It's not the only sin. There's the sin of the flesh. There's the sin of the boardroom too. Fraud and greed and corruption. And so hardened to sin have we become that we are actively now instructing the young in the ways of wickedness. Even children's school books are instructing people how to engage in forbidden sin. Dear friends, I'm just saying that because that is um, what Romans 1 says will happen. And that is what has happened and is happening. Dear friend, that's where sin will eventually take you. It's a hardening and a corrupting thing. And I want to ask you today about your personal heart. Is your heart hard towards God today? You may have heard the truth before, but you've just hardened your heart towards God. Do you know there'll come a time when your heart will be so hard that you'll, you, you won't believe and you'll be lost forever. Because every time you cast God away from your thoughts, your life becomes that bit more resistant to his call. Dear friends, I plead with you today that if God's speaking to you, and if you've had a hard heart towards God, ask him to create in you a clean heart, a new heart, 
Ask him to change your heart. Because he will. He, he can send the soft, refreshing rain of, of the gospel and he can soften your heart, your hard heart towards him. But you have to want to. You have to turn to him and say, give me a new heart, O God. The second type of soil is described in verse 5 of chapter uh, 13 and then with further explanation in verse 21 by the Lord Jesus. This is the second type of soil. Some fell on stony places where they had not much earth and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up they were scorched and because they had no root they withered away and then in verse 21 Jesus says this is what that means but he that received the seed into stony places the same is he that heareth the word and anon with joy he receiveth it yet hath he not root in himself but dureth for a while for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Here our Lord is not talking so much of the hard heart as the superficial and the shallow heart. This is where the seed has landed um, on the soil surface, but underneath that soil there is stone and rock. The depth of the soil is, is very shallow. And if you were to put your finger in the soil, you would soon hit hard rock. The seed germinates. There's a quick spurt of growth. But when the sun comes up, it dies, it withers. Because there's no depth. And there are people, aren't there, as we know, we, we may know them ourselves who have made an open profession of faith in Christ and they grow quickly. They seem to be making rapid progress as a Christian. They're joyful and they're excited. excited, And we, we, for a while they're a breath of fresh air and they encourage us. But some problem, some disappointment, something comes in and they fade away almost as quickly as they grew. They knew the prayers, they knew the choruses, they knew the hymns, and they joined in. But you know, the test of a true believer is that you are a true believer, that you endure, that you endure. That, and if you truly know the Lord, you will find that you will endure. You don't think you will. You think, I can't, I can't, how can I live this Christian life? How can I live like all these amazing Christians around me? And you think, I, can, I, I know this is not going to work out. But years and years later, you find you've endured. You're still in the fight. You're still a Christian. You endure, dear friend, because God is preserving you. He's preserving you in the faith. And 
you're still standing. You may have a pile of failures behind you which, uh, which you feel may overwhelm you, but they're behind you, but you're still enduring. And sometimes, you know, that's your best testimony. That despite everything, I'm still a Christian. I'm still, I still endure. You endure because God preserves his saints. Don't underestimate your testimony of being a Christian for a long time. As the parable shows, a short appearance as a Christian is of no value really at all. This is a dangerous kind of heart to have. A heart that shows some evidence of, of, a, of life or a Christian life for a while, but it withers away. And that's so typical of much Christianity, superficial, shallow Christianity. It's excitable. It can be emotionally charged, visually impressive, but it has no root, it has no depth, either in experience or in apostolic truth. Or it can just be merely intellectual. It can just always be try, worried about contentious things and proving an intellectual point. Or it can just be merely ex- externally religious. All these things are shallow soils. The seed has got into it. There's been some kind of evidence of, of life. It appeared at least. But there's no depth. Speaking of a survey by Pew Research in America. The sociolo- sociologist Michael Lindsay coined the phrase. Uh, religion in America is 3,000 miles wide and only three inches deep. Well, at least we could say America's got some width. The, the, the UK couldn't even say that. So we're, not, we're far worse off than, than America. But it's true, isn't it? Christianity in parts of Africa is famous for its rapid growth in the, in the 20th and the 21st centuries. But it's also noted in, for its shallowness and how believers' lifestyles do not conform to the word of God. You see, the word of God has to take root in your heart. There's no point being a flashy, noisy Christian for five minutes. You have to endure year after year, decade after decade, and remain faithful even on your deathbed, still praising God. I've been in East African churches and on a trip I did once and You would think you were in heaven to hear the music and the joy. But when you live with the people and you live live with the young people, I was younger then, they go off and do things I wouldn't even mention. And yet they'll go to the church on the Sunday as if nothing had happened. You can go to churches in this country And be greatly affected by a powerful atmosphere. But what happens in the end? There's no endurance. There's no fruit. Often there's a tremendous failure rate. 
We need to cry out to God for a deep experience of him. For true faith and repentance so that the word of God will dwell in us richly as a church and as individuals and as families. Like Ezekiel, we need to take the word of God and eat it, consume it so that it becomes like honey in our mouths. The Lord Jesus spoke of a third type of soil described by our Lord in verse 22 of our chapter. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becometh and he becometh unfruitful. So in this type of heart the seed of the word of God takes root and it starts to grow but by and by it gets choked and the life gets strangled by the thorns. You see as the farmer was sowing seed some of the seed, uh, some, the air took some of the seed or the wind and blew it amongst the thorns and the briars. And this type of ground well there's signs of growth but it never actually bears any fruit do you know have you met people like that that they be, they they never seem to get to the point of bearing any fruit for god spiritually speaking there is there's a kind of life but this person in the end always goes back into the world because life spiritual life is choked and strangled out of them by the deceitfulness of riches and the care of this world it's a strange phrase isn't it the deceitfulness of of riches thinking what does that really mean because nowhere in the bible does god forbid material wealth but it does warn of the care that you need to take if you do possess wealth of course from a global perspective I'd say probably the vast majority of us here today are very wealthy if you're a single person with an income of £18,000 per year there's only 6.1% of the world that is richer than you so we're all rich really And most of us are used to incomes far more than £18,000 a year. So how can riches deceive us? Well, they deceive us by appearing to offer more than they can ever provide. They, 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 they promise satisfaction for your life. But they're telling a lie. They're deceiving you. Think of all the dreadful things people have, have been drawn into in pursuit of more and more riches. They offer a kind of false security. It is nice to have some money in the bank because you're not worried about bills and things. But, do you know, it, 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 can, it can deceive you into thinking that you have some security underneath you. Because like uh, Solomon said... Um, 
Riches can take wings and fly away. It's funny how that can happen, isn't it? Something happens, you lose your job or something goes wrong. You didn't fill a form in right. (laughs) And your riches can fly away. Scriptures speak of uncertain riches. Riches are uncertain. They don't offer real security in life. And over time, many have found that love of money chokes and strangles the Christian life. Paul warned of this in 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I think my father was like that. He was a Christian, but he never really prospered as a Christian because he was a man of great wealth. Well, he seemed to lose it and then rebuild it again. But his life was filled with many sorrows because of wealth. But not only riches, but the care of this world, Jesus says, chokes the word. This heart is full of things prone to strangle the word of God care of this world I wonder that today are you a person who's forever minding the things of this world that that's really what's on top of your mind the whole time I'm not advocating withdrawing from the world um, but I'm saying are we in, so invested in the things of this, this world that our joy is dependent upon it Do we have a love for worldliness? Are things going on within us and in our lives that prevent prevent any fruitfulness for God? You know, in the end, you you will be found out. There's the great warning of Demas, the man Demas in 2 Timothy. For Demas, he was an important person in the church, it seems. For Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. A good task to ask ourselves ourselves is, what, what is our mind on most of the time? I'm not being unrealistic. I don't believe in being super spiritual. And I know when we're at work, work consumes us. It's all consuming, particularly when we've got a thousand emails. Um, Thankfully, I don't have to reply to any emails anymore, but I, I know what it's like when you come in and, the, and, and your whole day consumes you and, and you really haven't th- thought of God much. But when we have the, that space, what do, does our mind naturally turn to? What do we spend our time on? Do we take a few seconds, at least every now and then, to turn our hearts to God? Are our hearts filled with dreams of the things that we want to buy and to consume and to enjoy and save up for or borrow for, more likely? The care of this world can take many forms. Anything that will strangle 
the word of God, the progress of the word of God in your life. Even if it's your wife or your husband or your family or your children or even, dare I say, your Christian ministry coming before love of Christ himself, then it will strangle the word. It won't happen necessarily quickly like the shallow heart. You may be outwardly a Christian for a while, but there will be a fall. People will be shocked and disappointed, maybe devastated when you fall away, but you never really produced fruit. Not really. There is never really any real evidence of a true conversion. A true conversion always results in fruit. If there's no fruit, there is no conversion. Now we have to be careful how we say that. We hold on to the doctrine of justification by faith alone at all costs. But we must understand that although good works are never the cause of justification, the effect of justification will always be good works. As Martin Luther put it himself, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. This is what James teaches. Dear friends, if there's no fruit in your life, if you're not growing, at least to some degree, in holiness, if you're not at least making some progress in the Christian life, if there's no fruit at all, then I urge you to consider your heart today. What is choking that progress in your life? Is it love of the world? Is it riches? Is it family? Is it some interest? For me, when I was younger, it was, it was, the, it was theology, strangely. That, that was my God, when I think of it now. I loved the, wor- I loved the Word, but not, not, I, didn't, I, was, I was loving the Word. But there's only, there's only any point in loving the Word to get to the God of the world, of the Word. And so, dear friends, our hearts can deceive us. Lastly and quickly, the fourth kind of soil is described in verse 8 and 23. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth um, and bringeth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. This is, a, this is good ground. This type of heart brings forth spiritual fruit. It responds to the gospel and is saved. This is the area of the field where a, a good farmer has broken up the hard ground, taken out the hard rocks, and removed all the thorns. And the seed is able to take a, 
is able to be to take a good connection into the soil and go deep into the soil it's ground that has been prepared good ground doesn't mean good people this is not saying that good people are the ones that respond to the gospel it's saying that someone has prepared the ground in preparation for when the seed comes and in Christian salvation it is the secret sovereign work of regeneration or the new birth in the human heart that results in faith and repentance without the new birth man is dead in trespasses and sins he cannot turn to God or turn from his sins he is absolutely dead and this is why the word of God takes root in some and not in others because God has prepared the hearts of some through new birth and regeneration in John 3 Jesus teaches Nicodemus about the work of the Holy Spirit about his immediate supernatural work by which he quickens a dead person to spiritual life you see, by nature there is no good soil. The Arminian says you, you, you repent and believe and then you become born again. In the Reformed tradition we say regeneration precedes salvation. It is the secret sovereign will of God. The soil has to change. And God has to put that living seed into that good ground and you are granted the gifts of faith and repentance and the word takes root and it becomes productive in you God's work from first to last dear friend you need to cry if you're an unbeliever today for a new heart to God for God to give you spiritual life to turn you from death to life Ezekiel prophesied, or God through Ezekiel prophesied the time when I will sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I've lost count of the eyes again. It's God all the time. I will do this and I will do that. God takes the stone away. He prepares the field so that when the seed comes, it takes root and bears fruit. Oh dear friend, cry to God for a clean heart, a new heart. God will put faith in your heart and you will see your sinfulness and you will turn from your sin and to him. Lastly, just a few seconds, just a word to Christians as Christians today. We just note Christ's final remarks about this fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Whilst every Christian life bears fruit, if we're not bearing fruit, then we're not good ground. 
But not all Christians produce the same amount of fruit. Regeneration, salvation is completely the work of God. Sanctification is a cooperative process between the Christian and God the Holy Spirit. Christian obedience either increases or decreases the fruitfulness of Christian sanctification. It is a synergistic, cooperative process. And so you and I as Christians need to make every effort to yield to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we need to make good use of the means of grace, the word of God, meetings like this, fellowship, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. All these things enhance and stimulate growth within the Christian life. And so, dear friend, as Christians, let us bear Let us be as fruitful as we can be. Because for us, when we meet God before the judgment, the question will not be whether we will be saved and our judgment has already taken place upon the cross. We are saved for time and for eternity. The question will be, what fruit did you bear? What reward is appropriate for the Christian life you lived? And so let us spend our lives, our energy, our health, our time on that and reap a great harvest of reward for Jesus' sake. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com That's grace2seekers at gmail.com Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk